Good morning. I'm Mike Overstreet, a pastor at Element 3 Church, and we're moving into week four of our series, Campfire Story, where we've been exploring the parables of Jesus through the lens of those old stories about maniacs and monsters that we would tell around the campfire at the end of the night. Stories designed to draw us in and then shock us when we least expect it. And we're doing this because I believe that the parables of Jesus are his own version of campfire stories, not about monsters, but about the kingdom of God. That they're intentionally designed in a similar way to draw us in to the upside-down world and values of Jesus and the kingdom. That they're designed in this powerful way to shock us when we least expect it, thus challenging us with what they reveal. And we've been engaging these parables with four parable ground rules that we've been using to navigate these stories and their design. And y'all, I warned you in week one, it's quiz time. Pop quiz, fill in the blank. So first rule, the parables are stories that create blank between something understandable to Jesus' first century Jewish audience and his own identity, mission, and the kingdom of God. What's the answer? Parallels. That's right. They are pa parables are stories that create parallels between these things. Second rule, their purpose isn't to give clear answers. It's to make us what? Answer? Wrestle. The parables are designed to make us wrestle, not to bring absolute clarity. They never have just one interpretation. They're designed to be returned to often, finding new layers, questions, and implications each time. Third rule, the parables are universal and timeless in their truths, but their content is what? Answer, contextual. Their content is highly contextual to Jesus' first century Jewish audience who he intended to understand them. Thus, if we take them out of their context, we risk misunderstanding them. And finally, the fourth rule, the parables are meant to be blank in a way that demands a response from their audience? Answer, provocative. The parables are not tame stories. If a parable doesn't provoke us, then we are reading it wrong. So grade yourselves. I'm going to trust honor code system. Great job. I'm sure you all pass. Now, for today, I want to explore another classic kind of campfire story, the ones about becoming a monster. You know them. They're reliant on one of the most familiar tropes there is. Someone who, due to something outside of their control, slowly begins to transform into something horrifying. What starts as an innocuous bite or encounter slowly becomes something much more. The person starts feeling sick. They start noticing physical changes. They start craving human flesh. Then, what started small grows into an uncontrollable, unstoppable transformation, one that consumes them, where their humanity unravels, and before time passes, they become a monster. And I love these stories. They're timeless, and they've been reframed over and over again in human history. This trope appears in some of those classic stories ever told. Let me throw you a few examples. The first is, if you went to high school, in the 21st century, you might have come across this gym. 
Franz Kafka's The Metamorphosis, the story of salesman Gregor Sampsa, who wakes up one morning to discover that he's been transformed into a giant insect or a cockroach. And y'all, it's a very weird book. Also, probably my wife's nightmare, I'm pretty sure she would murder me in a second if I woke up as an insect. Another example, it obviously defines the zombie genre an uncontrollable spreading infection that robs entire swaths of people of their humanity. This is exactly what this trope is about. Or how about this one? One of the most classic horror scenes ever shot. The transformation scene from an American werewolf in London. And y'all, I would show you the scene, but the noises alone are both disgusting and would probably get me fired, so I'm just going to give you this picture. And obviously, it's the foundation of the vampire story. Now, I'm not a Twilight guy, but I do love the show, What We Do in the Shadows, and it has a scene that captures this process of transformation well. Uh, let's roll it. Michelangelo Bonarotti. Michelangelo. I've developed an eye sensitivity and skin sensitivity. And sometimes, sometimes I have this urge to tear my roommate to shreds. It's become pretty clear to me that I'm turning into a vampire. I mean, these stories are as old as we are. They drill into one of our deepest fears as human beings, that we could, without wanting or intending to, experience a process of transformation that leaves us unrecognizable. That, in a moment, we can lose our very identity and become something from our previous perspective that is monstrous. It feeds on that anxiety that the plans for our lives can get turned upside down in an instant, and we can lose who we are and who we had hoped to become in the blink of an eye. And this sets the backdrop for our parable today, often called the merchant in the pearl, a parable that's just two sentences long. And yet, these two sentences speak profoundly and provocatively to the transformation of life and identity that we fear, but that we're called to in the kingdom of God. And y'all, if you've ever wondered if someone could geek out about two sentences for an entire sermon, well, you're in luck. You're about to discover that the answer is a resounding, nerdy yes, because I love this parable. We find it in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, in verses 45 and 46. We read that Jesus says, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So, a businessman goes searching for goods, finds something valuable, and acquires it. Short, sweet, straightforward, seems simple enough but not so fast. See, this parable may not have the build and that shocking twist that we've seen in the other parables we've covered so far in this series, but it's provocative right off the bat. It's easy to miss because the provocation is in the nuance of its language. Let me show you what I mean. First, let's start with the protagonist, a merchant, a person with an identity defined by his vocation, seeking treasure to then sell. And while merchants may be neutral or positive for us, like a savvy businessman in our American context, for Jesus' first century Jewish audience, this is a deeply negative and provocative person to connect to the kingdom of heaven. 
See, the word merchant is the Greek word emporos, and it's a specific kind of tradesman. Emporos profited by trading in decadent items that the average person couldn't afford and by price gouging. It's someone who sells goods that aren't as valuable as they say to profit off of others, who would do anything to make a buck. And believe it or not, these people aren't characterized positively in the biblical context. In Revelation 18, emporos are depicted as weeping over the fall of the Roman Empire, the symbol of oppressive empires, because without it, no one will buy their cargo anymore. In other words, they're depicted as people who would rather see human suffering continue than lose profit. And in the Old Testament, they're often slave traders. They're deceivers of Israel. They're tied to Israel's enemies more often than not. Rabbinical tradition goes as far as to call them morally bankrupt people who are ambivalent towards God and his ways. People who are willing to ally and trade with pagans and non-Israelites, even when it breaks God's commandments, so long as it lets them get the best deal. So, Jesus beginning a story about the kingdom of God with this guy in this job would have caught his audience's attention immediately. But wait, there's more. There's what he's looking for. Fine pearls. You see, this distinction is important. For us, pearls are just nice jewelry. But in Jesus's day, pearls were only for the uber wealthy. They were items that were worth more than even rubies. They were more expensive than almost all precious jewels. There's a story from the ancient world that really hits this point home. It's a story about Cleopatra, queen of uh, Egypt, where she bets that she can eat the equivalent of a million dollars in one meal. A bet that she wins by taking off and eating one of her pearl earrings. I mean, pearls were the symbol of extravagant wealth. They were meant to flaunt one's status and riches. They had no real other purpose in Jesus's time. Most of Jesus's poor Israelite audience would never have even seen one in person. On top of that, think about this. What creates pearls? Oysters. And you might think, what's the big deal about that? Well, if you know your Old Testament, you know that an oyster is a non-kosher animal that faithful Israelites who followed God's commands were forbidden to eat under God's law. Thus, though the pearl isn't explicitly forbidden as jewelry, it's intimately tied to an animal that is. So, we have a dubious man seeking an item tied to unfavorable trade, pagans, and a strutting of wealth that is not in line with godly eye deals. And this is who Jesus ties to the kingdom of heaven in the story. I mean, what a way to start, Jesus. You've got my attention. Then the story gets strange. He goes out seeking pearls, plural, but he gives up not once he finds a sufficient number like he originally intended, but after finding just one. One exquisite pearl he desires so much that he liquidates all he has. The text implies that he sells everything, food, clothing, future provisions, all of his other merchandise. He impoverishes himself 
to attain this one item that though beautiful, seemingly can't do anything practical for him. He can't live off of it. And given how much he's sacrificed to get it, he probably can't flip it for a profit. I mean, this is foolishness by the standards of his trade as a merchant. His audience would be like, what an idiot. Either way, having identified the pearl's value to him, he does whatever he has to do to obtain it and obtain it he does. I mean, what a strange story. How on earth is this like the kingdom of heaven? Well, I believe the key is how the parable is written. Notice it doesn't say that the kingdom of heaven is like the merchant or the pearl. It says the kingdom of heaven is like the process of the merchant seeking pearls. And what results from that seeking? Think about it for a second. We have a man who has spent his life to find his identity through the wrong profession, searching for all the wrong things with the wrong results of his initial search, who finds something that though he wasn't originally searching for, he recognizes as an incomparably beautiful and valuable, something new and unexpected that he desires so greatly that he becomes willing to give up everything to acquire it. An action with two layers The first is the most obvious. He gives up everything he spent his life collecting to do something that, from his previous way of life, would have been foolish. And second, and this is the deeper layer, and this is where the parable hits home for me. He stops being a merchant after this action. His trade, his identity was collecting merchandise, making a profit, and looking for the next thing to buy and sell. And yet at the end of this parable, he surrenders everything that made him a merchant to obtain this new pearl. He surrenders all of his merchandise. He surrenders everything he has. And thus, at the end of this parable, his identity changes. The merchant stops being a merchant through this process of seeking and finding. Author Amy Jill Levine puts it like this. The merchant has found what he wanted, although until the moment of the find, he did not realize his true desire. He has reconceptualized both his past values and his future plans. The magnitude of the life change is paramount. He is no longer what he was. And I wrestled this week with how to ground this parable. But as I sat with it, it became clear. This is what kingdom transformation is. It's what I have found it to be in my own life. You see, I'm a recovering addict, which means that I spent large chunks of my life with one ultimate concern, seeking the next high, drunk, or escape from reality. That seeking was my identity. And that journey of addiction led me to rock bottom, which, believe me, sucked. And yet, at bottom, I found something that I never would have dreamed to search for with who I was then. This moment where all the roads of my life came to a crossroad, where I could either stay the same and probably die, if I'm being honest with you, or I could give myself fully over to a different path. God, spirituality, sobriety. And y'all, 
That decision was terrifying. From my perspective, in that moment, that different path was just like becoming a werewolf, a vampire, a giant cockroach. It was an unimaginable way of life to who I had been. And sitting there, I knew that if I went all in after it, doing whatever I needed to do to obtain it, I would never be the same again. I would lose what I had centered my entire life around, what I thought my future would be. I would lose my social life as it was currently compromised. I would lose my daily habits. I would lose my coping mechanisms. I knew that if I accepted this other path, I would have to let go of who I thought I was. I would have to let go of my identity. I would have to become something new, something unknown, something inhuman to who I was then. And I chose what I would have previously called foolish. And all I could say is, I'm so glad I did. Because it let me become someone I never would have dreamed of being. Healthy, whole, sober. I mean, that's what this parable says to me. And it's easy to think good for Mike. It's so nice that Jesus cares about and transforms drug addicts. I'm so glad he does that, but thank God I'm not one. But this parable isn't just for me and the addicts. This parable is for all of us. Because I believe we are all addicts in our own right. And you may say, that's ridiculous. I don't abuse drugs and alcohol. But bear with me. If addiction is just a compulsive pattern of habits or behaviors that produce negative outcomes for ourselves and others, but we just keep doing them, well, then I think we're all more addicted than we want to admit. To quote Friar Richard Rohr, stinking thinking is the universal addiction. Substance addictions like alcohol and drugs are merely the most visible form of addiction. But actually, we are all addicted to our own habitual way of doing anything, our own defenses, and most especially, our patterned way of thinking. I mean, just think about it. All of us have cycles that we turn to over and over again, no matter what their results are, no matter how much damage they produce to ourselves and those around us. I think many of us are addicted to control. The belief that if we could just manipulate enough vents and enough people and make them do what we want, then we can ensure that nothing bad happens. And obviously bad equals just what I don't want to happen. And though this control doesn't work and it breaks us in our relationships, we just keep trying to do it. That's addiction. Others are addicted to fear and anxiety. Believing that by worrying, we can predict and prevent future suffering. And what do we do? We just get sick over things that we're powerless over, over things that haven't happened yet. And we start seeing everything and everyone as a potential threat. And then we start treating them accordingly. How does that work in a relationship? Or how about an addiction to recognition? That compulsive need to be recognized, praised, told that we're okay living our lives, determining our mental and emotional health according to the thoughts of others who we have no control over? Or how about an addiction to judgmentalism? Anyone love that high feeling when you just think you're better than those people? Anyone know that rush of superiority? Or 
I think in our culture, this applies to all of us. How about the addiction to the next thing? Compulsively looking for the next goal to reach, saying the next thing that I get will complete me. The next car, diploma, promotion, relationship, raise. But what happens? We get the thing. It doesn't fix us. And instead of maybe realizing that pattern doesn't work, we just move the goalpost and set out seeking again. Anyone do that? Live their life for the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, never being fulfilled? I mean, fill in the blank. Anger, hate, work, power, money, sex, comfort, self-pity, fantasy, laziness, crisis, thrill. We all have something that we're addicted to. Something we've made the object of our ultimate concern that we set out seeking each day that we've tied to who we are. And in that, this parable challenges me. Because unless you're Jesus of Nazareth, we're all the merchant seeking pearls at times. Often seeking the wrong things, finding each success to be ephemeral, moving to the next thing after that, constantly seeking. But this parable says, that in the kingdom of God, there is a different way of real value, a way that we're invited to find even if we didn't set out looking for it on our original journey. This parable is about seeking, yearning, and the possibility of new life in the kingdom of God, the possibility of transforming not from humans into monsters, but from monsters into human beings again. It's a beautiful, parable. It's a beautiful invitation, a beautiful process. But it's a process, according to this parable, that requires something of us. First, it requires a willingness to seek. For Jesus, the kingdom isn't a commodity to earn, to buy, to possess. It's found in the very act of seeking, that those who seek are the ones who find it. It requires recognizing that we are lacking in some way. Hoping that the status quo is not all there is and being willing to let that truth and that hope take us on a journey into the unknown of newness. A journey that is always out of our control, that often brings suffering that may cost us much, but a journey worth going on. <sighs> See, in finding God, and seeking frees us on that journey as well. It frees us to realize that we can trust God with our future because we know that as long as we seek, he is there with us, that we will find him wherever we're at. And we could stop lamenting our past as well. Even if it was defined by all the wrong things, all the searching for pearls and the merchant lifestyle that we could dream of, we can stop hating because we know he was there too. Because we know that that seeking, no matter how much it hurt us, brought us here, brought us to this moment, brought us to him, his kingdom, and the potential of new life. Rock bottoms and all, it's all included in the seeking and the transforming that God is doing. But we must be willing to go out seeking in the first place. Second, it requires 
that we name our pearls, those cycles of addiction in our lives. The merchant stops existing in the realm of buying, selling, wanting, and wanting more at the end of this parable. He shows us that we can get to a point where we can just step out of those cycles that have defined our lives altogether. That the invitation of the kingdom is to name, surrender, and release those old cycles. That it's possible that we can let go of the things that we just keep doing, that just keep breaking us, even if they're comfortable. We can watch them be broken. We can let Jesus take them from us, and we can be freed to become something more, something real, something better. But we have to be willing to name them first. Third, transformation and the kingdom requires that we go all in on a new source of ultimate concern. I mean, this parable is about a willingness to go all in on both surgically removing those old cycles and replacing them with something new, something better. Healthy life change can't happen if we're just cutting things out of us without adding a replacement in return. The parable asks, what is your ultimate concern? And it challenges us to realize that seeking the kingdom is the only true source of our ultimate concern. It's the only true foundation of who we are and what we do. It's the only thing capable of filling that longing in us. So we have to go all in after it. I mean, that's why this parable shows us this seeking the kingdom of God isn't something we can just dabble in. No, to find it in our seeking, we must accept that our kingdom calling, loving God, ourselves, our neighbors, is something that is only truly found if we're willing to jump all in. And finally, it requires a surrendering of our identity. The parable asks me, are you willing to stop being a merchant at the end of this process? Are you willing to lay down your old identity to receive a better one. See, this parable reminds me that this process of transformation will fundamentally require that I lose who I thought I was before seeking the kingdom. Like the merchant, kingdom life change means seeking something new, recognizing it when we see it, going all in after it. But we can't stop there because it also includes actually letting our deepest identity be transformed in that process. Without this deep change of who I think I am, I think I could quit using, but just replace one addiction with a different one. Now, real kingdom life is found when this journey leads me to the point where I am willing to let who I've always defined as Mike die. I allow all of me to be changed into something new. And this is the scariest step. It's the one that very few of us take because it means that we have to go forward not knowing who we will become. Yet, going anyway with hope and trust that the journey will lead us to who and what we need to be. I mean, that's a scary journey. But I believe it's one that's worth it. The merchant, by human standards, acted foolishly. And believe me, Kingdom change will make you feel and look foolish to some at times. I mean, that's what happens when the people watch you throw away everything that you used to be. But on the other side, 
the merchant is able to define his treasure on his own terms. He is able to recognize what for him has true value and do what he must to obtain it. And in doing so, he finds a new kind of pearl, one that is qualitatively different, better, one that points beyond the previous concept of pearls that he held, that points to something that he previously would have called unimaginable, to something that he didn't even know existed when he set out. But one that once found draws him in and proves more valuable than anything that came before because it does what nothing else could. It changes him, leads him to new life, leaves him transformed by and to something new, something true. And that is good news. Amen.